Uh, welcome everybody to this installment of London Aesthetics Forum. We should start off by thanking, as we do, the Institute of Philosophy for providing us with some space and the British Society of Aesthetics for supporting us financially. That's good of them. Uh, we have today Margot Strominger, who will talk to us about supposition, imagination, and offline belief. All yours. Great. All right, thank you. Thanks for coming, everyone. Um, so, uh, what I'm going to be doing today is uh, talking about um, a view that you might, uh, or a topic that you might especially associate with aesthetics, but I'm going to be approaching it from a different angle, um, more from the angle of epistemology. And so what I'm going to do is first I'm going to start out by um, looking at the roles of uh, supposition and imagination in epistemological theorizing about conditionals and modality. And then I'm going to um, introduce this posit that I'm calling offline belief, and I'm going to argue that both roles can be played by it in, in the epistemological theories, and uh, then I'm going to argue that we should prefer an account that does without supposition and imagination altogether and uses offline belief instead. Okay, so first of all, I should say something about why uh, this is appropriate for an aesthetics forum. <laughs> Um, you know, I take it we all agree that the imagination is central to aesthetics, um, and as we'll see shortly, um, in aesthetics as elsewhere, the imagination is standardly contrasted with supposition, right? So we think of these as two very different uh, propositional attitudes. And some of the questions that I'm going to be tackling today are, what do we use the imagination for beyond aesthetic appreciation? And what theoretical roles does the imagination play for us in philosophy? And how do they differ from the roles of other attitudes such as supposition? Okay, and so you might think of this as um, uh, hooking up to an old debate in the philosophy of art and aesthetics about how we can learn from fiction, right? Um, but I'm not going to be directly engaging with it. Instead, I'm going to be um, looking at kind of more uh, mundane uh, uses of the imagination and uh, asking how we should be characterizing that process. And I think hopefully somewhere down the line this will tell us something interesting about how we uh, process narratives, especially fictional narratives. Okay. All right, so that, that's my apology for uh, giving more of an epistemology talk uh, here. Um, all right, so first what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the standard contrasts that we see um, that are drawn between supposition and imagination, in a, in a, really in a wide range of debates. Um, and then I'm going to talk about um, this propositional attitude that I call offline belief. What is it? Um, and then I'm going to talk about Let's look at the roles of supposition and imagination when we think of how we um, answer like what if questions, right? Um, thinking about conditional statements. And then showing that those same roles can be taken over um, or played by offline belief instead. And then I'm going to do the same thing for um, claims about modality, right? Possibility and necessity. Um, and I'm going to look at what roles have people thought can be played by imagination, particularly, and supposition to some extent, too, and show how those same roles can be played by offline belief instead. And then um, at the end, I'm going to 
uh, give some motivation for prefer preferring this kind of offline belief-based approach, or what I'm calling a simulationist alternative. Okay, so what's the difference um, between supposition and imagination? Um, I'm not gonna really try to answer this question, and in fact, much of my motivation for kind of giving this alternative approach that I'm gonna present later on today is that we can actually steer clear of these difficult questions about how supposition and imagination differ. Um, okay, but, so I'm gonna focus on propositional imagination. Now, arguably, there are some kind of objectual imaginings that are, you can't reduce to propositional imaginings, right? So you might think that imagining an empty highway is different from any kind of propositional imagining. It's different from imagining that you're on an empty highway or that there is an empty highway. Um, I'm gonna bracket that view and I'm just gonna look at propositional imagination. And uh, we find two, uh, two views, um, both of which contrast supposition and imagination. First says that um, supposition isn't a kind of imagination at all, right? So you can suppose something to be the case without imagining it to be the case. And the second sort of view thinks of supposition as a kind of imagination. Um, this is a slightly less popular view, I would say. So if one supposes that P, you thereby imagine that P. Okay. And um, it might be helpful to think back to what the motivations are, in particular for the first view. So why think supposition isn't a kind of imagination? Well, you know, it seems like we can cook up examples where you can suppose that P for the sake of argument without imagining that P, right? So um, you can suppose that um, the square root of two is rational um, with, for the sake of argument, for the sake of reductio, without imagining it to be the case, right? Um, another idea that we get is that imagining that P is somehow more demanding than supposing that P. So people think, oh, it's phenomenologically richer. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a process that takes more time, that kind of thing. Okay, so there are, there are a bunch of views that kind of try to spell out how it's more demanding in various ways. Okay, another um, idea that we get in the literature is that success at supposition is more or less guaranteed where, it is, where it's not for imagination. So you can think, okay, well, there's this phenomenon of imaginative resistance, but there's no corresponding phenomenon of suppositional resistance, right? So, you know, there's this uh, literature on imaginative resistance where the idea seems to be that, you know, readers of a fiction are going along processing a story, and at a certain point, they can't imagine something that the author intends for them to imagine. And a very common thought in that literature is, okay, well in those cases, the, uh, the, the person engaging with a fiction can't imagine that claim, but they could very well suppose the claim to be the case. Okay. And then finally, um, many have thought that there are propositions that can't be imagined or um, can only be imagined with great difficulty that can easily be supposed. So, you know, you find, find claims along the lines of, oh, well, we can suppose really obvious contradictions to be the case, but we can't imagine them to be the case. Okay, 
so those are the kinds of uh, uh, remarks we find in passing for distinguishing the two propositional attitudes. And you know, I should say that um, the second sort of view that treats supposition as a kind of imagination has also tried to accommodate these intuitive contrasts. And what they do is they say, okay, well, there's supposition on the one hand, and then there's this more full-blooded, demanding kinds of imagination on the other, right? And so then you can get all the same contrasts I mentioned earlier, where the idea is that, well, okay, you can suppose anything to be the case, but you can't imagine it in some other sort of way. Um, so other sorts of imagining are more demanding, and success isn't guaranteed for them, and so on. Okay. All right, and um, you know, I should say that um, a bit about the contrast between supposition and imagination here before moving on to offline belief. And I, th I think f there hasn't really been that much discussion of supposition and imagination. The exception being, um, I think, discussions of conditional statements and modal statements. And as we'll see, they, they play very different roles in those debates. Um, and also to, you know, to some extent you see them playing roles in, say, the epistemology of thought experiments, but you might really think, well, that's just a special case of, of uh, thinking, reasoning with conditionals and modal claims. So we don't really need to treat that separately. Okay, so, um, so we've got, uh, you know, supposition and imagination playing very different roles in epistemology. Question, is it possible to get these roles replayed by one and the same attitude? That, I think, would seem to be very surprising. And um, that's exactly what I'm gonna argue is possible. But um, to do that, I'm gonna first need to introduce this idea of what I'm gonna call offline belief. Okay, and so this, this idea really just goes back to um, simulationist theories of mind reading or folk psychology. So how is it that we attribute mental states to others? We kind of put ourselves in their shoes, and one of the ways we do that is we put ourselves in their doxastic states, their belief states, right? And so, um, and arguably we can do this for a wide range of mental states. One of them is belief, and that's the one I'm gonna uh, focus on here, right? So. Uh, you know, we have all these metaphors in the literature. We, one kind of mental state simulates another kind of mental state, and we can think of them as offline analogs of the online counterparts. Um, so what, what does that mean exactly? Okay, which yeah. are the online counterparts? Uh, belief, for example, oh, visual right. experience, yeah. and so on. So the offline ones are the yeah. ones that are more imagination-like. Um, so which mental states can be simulated? Controversial issue. I'm just going to be assuming here that there are, we can simulate beliefs, okay? And I'm gonna call those offline beliefs. Okay, and so I'm introducing this as a technical term. Um, we use a variety of terms to refer to offline beliefs, I take it. Um, so think of imagine, suppose, pretend. Uh, very rough heuristic. If someone imagines that P, then they offline believe that P. Now, I want to emphasize here that this is a rough heuristic, and this is exactly why I want to introduce uh, the technical term here, um, because you know, I take it that in ordinary talk we can use uh, the term imagines to talk about other mental states, right? So I can say, well, I imagine John's at the pub, 
And I'm not saying that I'm imagining, uh, that I offline believe that he's at the pub, right? Uh, I online believe that he's at the pub, right? And uh, often when I talk about imagining too, it seems plausible that maybe sometimes I'm talking about other sorts of men offline mental states, right? Vis what we might think of as visualizing, right? Visual imagination. Um, right. Okay. All right, so let me say a bit about how um, I want to characterize um, offline belief. And the basic idea is to think about it in relationship to uh, belief. Okay, so one clear point of similarity is that we have offline beliefs in a subject and they interact with the same inferential mechanisms that the subject uses to modify or revise her beliefs in light of some new information. Okay, so let me just give you an example. Um, suppose I tell you, and you trust me, that there's a marathon in London this weekend, right? So you're gonna change, uh, you didn't think that before, stipulating. Um, you're gonna change various beliefs that you have in response to that. You're gonna think, okay, well there's gonna be lots of traffic, maybe I should avoid uh, going, uh, going in, you know, into this part of town, um, I should avoid using the tube, and so on. Okay, now, um, when we're doing that process, we're using certain inferential mechanisms, okay? I'm just you know, introducing this term. I'm not really telling you how this process works. But my claim here is that we reuse the same mechanisms when we're um, filling in the details of an offline belief episode, right? So I can start out by offline believing something, right? Someone asks you to suppose that there's a marathon in London this weekend, and then I kind of fill in the details, and I do that using the same inferential mechanisms, and they're, you know, broadly, we get broadly similar results in the offline belief case as in the standard online case, right? So I'll come to offline belief that there will be lots of traffic. Um, another point of similarity is just think about the possible range of contents, right? So um, the idea here is that for a given subject, if they can believe that P, then they can also offline believe that P, right? And so if someone can have a set of beliefs that includes, say, um, you know, Bob is a liar and Bob is not a liar, um, then someone can also simulate being in that doxastic situation, right? So they'll um, offline believe both that Bob is a liar and that Bob is not a liar. Okay. And yet there's a very um, key, uh, you know, difference in terms of functional roles. So if you think about the kinds of connections to action and assertion that people have pointed out in the case of belief, they're, they're quite different in the case of offline belief, right? So if I believe that there's a bear in the room, I'm going to run and hide, but if I offline believe it, I'm not gonna do that, right? At most, I'm going to pretend to run and hide. Um, or if I believe that there's a bear in the room, I will shout out, there's a bear in the room, but I'm not gonna do that if I'm merely offline believing it, right? Okay, and so, um, you know, I take it, uh, for, for those of you familiar with work on folk psychology and pretense, 
the, the kind of state or propositional attitude I've been talking about isn't going to sound new. It's really a, a new term for something we have already. And I'm just spelling out a specific account of it, right? Um, so we find that especially in what are called simulationist theories of folk psychology, um, but you don't need to assume that particular type of theory. I think it's very plausible that even if you're a theory th theorist, you're going to want to posit a state distinct from belief that, that works much like I'm the one I've talked about. So you know, for, for people familiar with this literature, um, I think the same attitude, more or less, is found in accounts like that of um, Curry and Ravenscroft. They talk about recreative imagination, uh, and that can be taken towards various mental states, including belief. Um, Alvin Goldman talks about enactment or e-imagination of belief. And uh, Nichols and Stitch have this account in terms of what they call a possible world box. Okay. And so, you know, just stepping back here, why should we posit offline belief? Um, I think the standard answer here has been, well, we need it to explain how folk psychology and pretense are possible. And, you know, something I'm trying to build the case for here today is that it actually helps us to explain a much broader range of, uh, how, how we acquire a much broader range of beliefs and sometimes knowledge, right? So sometimes you might use offline belief to simulate someone else's mental states and come to think, okay, I believe that Alex is bored right now by this process. Um, but other times, um, you know, you might use this offline belief process for forming beliefs that have nothing to do with other people's mental states, right? I use the process to figure out whether, um, you know, what will happen if um, I eat something in my, you know, immediate surroundings, right? And you might think of this as being a really evolutionary, uh, useful thing to have, right, for, you know, thinking through conditionals and uh, uh, practical possibilities. Um, and so that's kind of the picture that I'm working with here in the background. Okay. Um, so one um, thing that I do want to um, distinguish here are two kinds of offline beliefs. And they're, you know, we typically don't, in the literature um, on uh, folk psychology and pretense, we don't have terms for them, but I think it's very useful too. And we'll see that it's useful in the epistemological domain that I'm talking about. Um, so I'm gonna talk about offline belief inputs on the one hand and outputs on the other. And we can think of, um, on any given occasion, we have this sequence of offline beliefs that we use to represent a hypothetical scenario, right? So I, I um, offline believe that there's a bear in the room and I fill in various details of that. That's my sequence of offline beliefs, right? So in it, you know, I'm scared, uh, I run, and so on. Um, and I want to distinguish here between um, the offline belief that initiates the construction of the scenario, which is typically voluntary, and then on the other hand, uh, the outputs, those are used to fill in the details of the scenario by reusing the inferential mechanisms that I talked about, right? So, and that's typically involuntary. And so for people that are familiar with um, Nichols and Stitch, their book on mind reading, 
they, you can compare what I'm calling an offline belief input to what they call a pretense premise. And the offline belief output, I'm using roughly to talk about the states that are generated from this premise by inferential elaboration, as opposed to what they call non-inferential elaboration or embellishment. Okay, so I think it's helpful to visualize the process here and throughout the talk, I'm gonna uh, use some of these diagrams. So the idea here is just that we have, you know, these two different boxes, one for the beliefs, one for the offline beliefs. And in, um, we use the, the box on the left to represent uh, all of the offline beliefs I have on a given occasion. And, um, how some of them are beliefs I have already. So let me just give you an example. So I start out with the input that there's a marathon in London this weekend, and then I fill in the details. Some of these are gonna be things that I believe already, right? So I believe that you know it's a 30-minute commute from Paddington to Russell Square, and I import that when I'm filling in the details of what it's gonna be like this weekend. But others are gonna be things that I hadn't um, I didn't believe that, that are going to be offline belief outputs. So those are things like um, there will be lots of traffic, uh, I shouldn't use the tube, and so on, right? And so, um, you know, a, very, a natural way to describe this, it, the, the input is something we often would say with, as you'll see, something like, well, suppose that there's a marathon in London tomorrow. Uh, and we describe that whole process sometimes as an imagining. Okay. Okay, so now I want to look at the roles of supposition and imagination in thinking about uh, knowledge of conditional statements and then the role of how offline belief might play that, those roles. Okay. So there hasn't really been very much uh, work on this topic. Um, so really, I'm just going to be drawing on a, um, some recent work by Timothy Williamson here. OK, so this um, kind of uh, originates with uh, his thinking about how is it that we uh, evaluate counterfactual conditionals specifically. Um, but more recently, he's you know, claimed that this applies to any sort of conditional. Right, so any sort of if they statement, right? So the idea is that you evaluate an arbitrary conditional, if P then Q, by an imaginative exercise that is initiated by supposing that P, right? So first, you suppose that P, and if you involuntarily imagine that Q, you then come to believe the conditional. If, on the other hand, you involuntarily imagine, um, you know, a range of other propositions which don't include Q, um, then you, you may come to deny the conditional. And in the simplest case, we kind of use this heuristic where if you involuntarily imagine not Q, you end up believing it's not, the, the, the conditional is false. So let me just give an example. Um, you know, you're wondering, um, uh, you suppose that there's a marathon in London tomorrow or this weekend, and one thing you involuntarily come to imagine is that there will be lots of traffic, right? You come to believe the conditional, right? Um, if there's a marathon, there will be lots of traffic. Um, 
And, um, you know, if on the other hand you end up imagining that there won't be lots of traffic, you might come to deny the conditional. Okay? Um, so that's just the very basic story. Um, now I want to show that this sort of story Williamson tells um, can be generalized so that it applies to both, both kinds of conditionals that semanticists, philosophers of language discuss. So what do I mean here by indicative and counterfactual? Just the, um, you know, the standard uh, distinction is drawn by looking at whether there is, what kind of mood you find in the conditional. So you can think of uh, one and two here as having the same antecedent and consequent. The only difference is that we have a subjunctive mood in the second one. So um, if Oswald didn't kill Kennedy, then someone else did. That's an indicative conditional. On the other hand, if Oswald hadn't killed Kennedy, then someone else would have. That's a counterfactual. And what these kind of cases have been used to uh, illustrate is that it seems like uh, they, they have different truth values, right? So intuitively, you're supposed to uh, judge, okay, one is true, but two, um, well, that seems false. It's very probably false. If he hadn't been killed by Oswald, then you know, maybe he would have died of natural causes. Um, right, that, that sort of thing. Um, so what's going on uh, in terms of uh, the evaluation process? It looks like, um, this is such an intuitive difference, that it looks like we're actually evaluating these claims in a different way. And um, so when someone um, starts out by um, supposing that Oswald didn't kill Kennedy, um, we will end up imagining someone else did. But when we do it to evaluate the counterfactual conditional, we suppose, you know, what if he hadn't killed Kennedy? We um, don't imagine that someone else would have. Okay? So um, if we want to capture this intuitive difference, between the, the two kinds of conditionals, we can. And the idea is really just that we have two kinds of supposition. We have indicative supposition and counterfactual supposition, okay? Um, right. And so now what I wanna ask is how can we um, kind of adapt this account um, so it applies uh, so that offline beliefs fill the role of supposition and imagination here. Um, so hopefully it should be uh, you know, clear that I'm gonna wanna reuse the idea of the, the distinction between inputs and outputs in offline beliefs. So the idea is that when you're evaluating um, if P then Q, um, you use a sequence of offline beliefs. Right? And so first you form the offline belief input that P, right? the, whatever the antecedent of the conditional is. And then if you derive the offline belief output in the consequent Q, then you come to believe the conditional. Right? And then um, you know, the process of denying a conditional just uses offline belief output in the same role of involuntary imagination. Um, uh, from the previous account. Okay. 
And so, um, you know, a critical idea here is that, and this is something that we don't see in the literature on, uh, uh, in folk psychology or pretense, is that, well, actually, this process that we're using when we reuse inferential mechanisms to form offline beliefs, this actually can happen in two very different ways. So you can derive offline belief outputs from an input in one of two ways, right? So there's a way that we use to evaluate indicative conditionals, that's the indicative mode, and there's a way for counterfactual conditionals, and I'll call that the subjective mode. Okay. And the reason why we need those two, two different ways is because we want it to be the case that someone like Jill does evaluate one and two differently, right, when she uses this process, which is why there's this intuitive difference in truth value. Okay. Um, and so here we might, um, again, use the sort of um, boxes that I had for offline belief again. So we have um, a generic representation on the left-hand side. So this is how you use, you form a belief in a kind of conditional by deriving the output that Q from the input that P. And when you do this in the indicative mode, you get an indicative conditional belief. And when you do it in the subjunctive mode, you get uh, a belief in a counterfactual conditional. And uh, this is just um, the same process, except for denying a conditional. How is it that we come to believe that a conditional is false? So one way that we do it is we derive the output that not Q from uh, the input that P. Okay. All right, so that's the um, epistemology of conditional. So what I've tried to show in that last uh, bit of the talk is just that the roles played by supposition and imagination there can be played by, both can be played by offline belief. Okay, what about um, beliefs about possibility and necessity? So here I'm just going to talk about um, what sometimes gets called metaphysical modality um, or absolute modality. Um, I'm not going to be talking about epistemic modality or more restricted kinds of modality, right? About whether, you know, when I say something like, I can run a mile in under eight minutes, that's a, a claim about, you know, my abilities, which is very different from what's metaphysically possible. It's much more restricted. Okay. Um, and so in the literature, we find that there are two styles of account, roughly. So one is uh, kind of an extension of the account I saw, I presented earlier in the last section. So that's what I'll call the counterfactual based account modal knowledge. And the second is uh, what you might call a Humean account of modal knowledge. And that's, that's just the idea that um, imaginability is a guide to possibility. I'll say a bit more about what that means shortly. Okay, so what I want to do is look at what roles supposition and imagination play in those uh, two sorts of accounts. Okay, so we'll start with the counterfactual account. Um, the basic idea is just that you evaluate modal claims by using the same process used to evaluate certain logically equivalent counterfactuals. Okay, and so, you know, 
you might have different views about which logical equivalence is relevant, but this, the standard one that, that people focus on is, is just the one that, well, it's meta, metaphysically impossible that P, um, that's equivalent to saying, if it were the case that P, then a truth functional contradiction would be the case, right? Then everything would follow, okay? And so then, um, if you fill this account in using supposition and imagination, the idea that you get is, okay, you just reuse the process um, that you use to evaluate the equivalent counterfactual for trying to figure out whether something is impossible, right? So you first suppose, you know, I'm wondering, is it, or is it possible that there are zombies? First, I'll suppose that there are zombies and then I'll kind of involuntarily imagine various claims. Now, if I involuntarily imagine, you know, a contradiction, then I'll come to believe it's impossible. And if I don't, if I'm not able to find a contradiction after many attempts, I may come to believe that it's possible. Okay, and then the idea is, well, in some cases, it's hard to say which, uh, those beliefs constitute knowledge. Okay, so, uh, what's the idea if we're thinking in terms of offline beliefs? The idea is just that we're using the offline belief system operating in the subjunctive mode to evaluate modal claims and not just counterfactuals. So we really just rely on the earlier account of counterfactual knowledge I sketched earlier, right? So the idea is that you try to evaluate whether um, you know, it's possible that there are zombies by kind of starting out with an input, an offline belief input, that there are zombies, and then deriving various outputs from it. If you get a contradiction, judge, judge that it's impossible. And if you don't, uh, and you don't think that you've done anything wrong, uh, you'll come to believe that it's possible, and that might be, poss might be knowledge. Zombies are hard. Okay. Um, so, uh, so what's the, so the idea here really, if you want to go back to these diagrams, um, is really just that we use the same process for forming beliefs in the counterfactual condition on the left as we do for trying to figure out that something is impossible, right? So if I form the output um, that in some, you know, contradiction, right, something like P and not P, um, then I can come to believe, well, if P hasn't been the case, then a contradiction would follow. But I can also uh, come to believe um, the equivalent modal claim. I can come to believe that P is impossible. Okay, and then the second sort of account, what I call the Humean account, is that um, you can come to know that P is possible by imagining that P. Right? And that we can see various accounts in the literature is really trying to tell us what those circumstances are and what circumstances is imagining that P enough for getting you prima facie justification or possibly even knowledge, right? And uh, the, the slogan that people tend to use is that conceivability or imaginability is a guide to possibility. <coughs> okay. So, um, 
what I want to ask now is, well, is there a kind of offline believing that plays roughly that role? And the answer, I think, is yes. Um, I actually think there are a couple of ways of stating the circumstances, but I'm just going to focus on one, one way of doing it. Okay. So here's um, a really uh, uh, plausible view about how metaphysical possibility is connected to counterfactuals. So people, uh, so you might think that if, um, if Q were the case and then P would be the case um, and the antecedent of the conditional is possible, then so is the consequent. So let me give you an example that was uh, too abstract. Um, so it's possible that I uh, leave for Oxford tomorrow um, at 9 a.m. If I were to leave, uh, leave for Oxford tomorrow at 9 a.m., I would arrive home by 11. Okay, so suppose both of those things are true. We should also think it's true that it's possible for me to arrive uh, home by 11 a.m. tomorrow. Okay? Um, people have thought that this principle is plausible for actually a, a variety of kinds of possibility, not just metaphysical possibility, but I'm just going to be using the metaphysical possibility version here. And so if that's the case, you might think that something that we do is we actually use, um, we form judgments about counterfactuals in order to arrive at um, and extend our knowledge of possibility. So if I know that something is possible, I know that it's possible um, for me to leave for Oxford tomorrow at 9 a.m. And then I go through this process in my offline belief system of, well, I start out with this input that I leave tomorrow at 9 a.m., I fill in the details in such a way that I arrive home by 11. Um, not only can I come to believe that if I, if I were to uh, leave at 9, I would arrive home by 11, but I can also come to believe that it's possible for me to get home by 11, right? And so it's, so, one way of looking at what's going on here is that in this uh, <coughs> situation, someone can know that P is possible by offline believing that P, right? So let me just illustrate the process here. So the idea is that um, when you successfully offline, form the offline belief <coughs> output that P, um, given Q, and you already believe Q to be possible, then you can also come to believe that P is possible and not just the, the counterfactual on the left. Okay, all right, so that's um, the end of the part of the talk where I, I look at the roles of supposition and imagination in these epistemological domains and uh, show that, try to show that uh, offline belief can play those roles. And now what I want to ask is, you know, okay, they can play these roles. Why are we better off with thinking about this process in terms of offline belief rather than in terms of supposition and imagination, right? Um, so I'm going to say a bit to motivate this sort of offline belief-based or simulationist alternative, right? So you might think, okay, we've got these two approaches. On the one hand, this more folk psychological approach that uses supposition and imagination. 
And then the other hand, this more cognitive scientific approach, uh, which uses mental simulation and offline belief. Okay. Um, so first of all, I want to say that I'm, you know, I want to disavow any sort of eliminativist motivation. So some, you know, some philosophers of mind, um, I suppose this is very much a minority view, have thought, okay, well, you know, once we get our mature science of the mind up and running, we're not going, we're going to want to dispense with notions like belief altogether and replace them with these other uh, sort of sorts of posits because our, our uh, you know, folk psychology is so misguided, right? Um, and you might kind of think, well, that sort of looks like what, um, like what I'm doing, right? I'm trying to do without these folk psychological posits of supposition and imagination and work just with this offline belief posit. Um, but that's not what I'm doing at all. So I want to say that the motivations are much more specific and they're limited to supposition and imagination in epistemological theorizing about conditionals and modality, right? And, you know, indeed I'm relying on folk psychological posits myself. You know, belief is a central, um, is used to characterize offline belief in the first place. Okay, so what are the advantages? So I, I take it that there are three advantages. So one is one uh, continuity. So there's continuity with earlier work on folk psychology and mind reading. Um, and we can see that the same mental state features in the evaluation of conditionals and modal claims as in children's games of pretense, um, the appreciation of fiction, folk psychology. And indeed, we see, you know, sometimes in passing, these theorists have suggested that, you know, the original function of uh, mental simulation might have been to be able to evaluate conditionals. And part of what I'm trying to do here is show how we can fill in the details of such an account. Um, and the second is that I take it that this offline belief account is more informative. It tells us more about the mechanisms underlying the process of, process of evaluating conditionals and modal claims, right? So the idea is that you reuse the same inferential mechanisms that get used in updating or revising beliefs, right? And these mechanisms can be reused in one of two ways, indicative or subjunctive, right? So on the, in the imagination supposition sort of account, it's kind of mysterious what sort of you know, imaginings are uh, relevant when you're coming to believe uh, something to be possible or a conditional to be true or false. Um, but the th there's also a third motivation, and this is really the, um, the most important, I think. And this is that it allows us to avoid difficult questions about uh, the nature of imagination and how it's related to supposition. So, you know, when we look at um, the literature on imagination, you know, we find a whole uh, very deep disagreements about what it takes to be able to imagine something, how it's related to supposition, right? So, so one kind of dispute that we have is, you know, whether you're even able to imagine truth functional contradictions. So some people, um, you know, like Graham Priest have said, of course we can, a uh, vast majority have said no, and then there's a question about well, which kinds of claims <coughs> can we imagine to be the case? 
Um, and in order to, to endorse the sort of um, epistemology that I've discussed today um, that uses counterfactuals, you need to be able to say that you can imagine contradictions. Now, if you have a, a, a view using offline belief, you can sidestep those questions altogether, right? You don't need to uh, answer, uh, to have, a, have reasons for thinking that you can imagine contradictions to be the case. Um, okay. And so one sort of response that I, I take it that a lot of people might have to this is, well, maybe the supposition imagination accounts that you've you've given to us, they can be reconciled with the offline belief account, right? Um, and then we can have both. So they're not really in competition. Um, and what I want to emphasize here is just that this, if we are to reconcile them, that is going to require us to answer the questions about whether we can, how supposition and imagination on the one hand line up with offline belief. And I take it those are really difficult questions uh, I don't really expect answers to them anytime soon. Um, but the point here really also is just that we don't need to answer the questions if we're going to kind of uh, have a satisfying account of how the process uh, for forming beliefs and getting knowledge in these claims is possible. Um, so of course you can stipulate new uses for suppose or imagine but I don't really see the point in doing that, right? Because this is going to kind of give rise to a, a new meaning, which is you know, very different from the one that we ordinarily use potentially, and this can create confusion, right? So we can avoid these vague terms of suppose and imagine and just work with offline belief, um, at least when we're doing the epistemology. Okay. All right, so now I'm gonna uh, wrap up. So first, I just wanna say that, you know, here I've just looked at metaphysical modality. Um, I should also say that I think that this can be extended to other so-called objective modalities. So you might think that, you know, uh, as I mentioned earlier, when I say something like, um, it's possible for me to run a mile in under eight minutes, um, I'm actually making um, a claim that implies that it's metaphysically possible, but it's more demanding. Um, now, I think that sort of process of how we evaluate those sorts of claims is actually very closely related to the metaphysical claim and the counterfactuals. So I think there's reason to be optimistic here that it can be whatever we say about um, the role of imagination in the epistemology of objective modality more generally can also then be um, uh, stated in terms of offline belief. Um, and second, um, you know, you might think, well, some accounts don't really use supposition imagination at all. They're <coughs> framed in terms of conceivability, conception, where that's supposed to be different from imagination. Um, and I just want to note that I think uh, what I've said here would equally apply to conceivability, right? Because it's playing more or less the same role um, that we saw in the Humean account of possibility, right? Conceivability is a guide to possibility. So that same role can be played by offline belief. Okay, and so um, just to summarize what I've tried to do today, 
Um, you know, I started out by explaining the traditional contrast between imagination and supposition. Um, then I looked at their roles in epistemology and how different they are, and I argued that they can and should be played by a single attitude, namely what I called offline belief. Okay. Thank you.